This episode of Query is sponsored by Wild Fang, a feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy and is committed to giving back. Wild Fang is female-founded, women-run, offering gender-smashing styles that borrow from the boys. A percentage of every purchase at wildfang.com goes to charity, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to fight for your rights. Also, personally, I like their stuff. You can go to wildfang.com and use the code QUERY for 25% off. That's W-I-L-D-F-A-N-G dot com. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. I just want to let you know that this Friday, the 9th of November, I will be in St. Louis for a show. On Saturday, I will be in New York on the 10th. So you can head to CameronEsposito.com slash tour and get all your tickets there. Those are my last two tour dates this fall. So if you don't live in New York or St. Louis, I assume you should buy a house and move there by this weekend. I also have an, um, a really interesting interview on today's show. Uh, my guest is... Garrett Conley. He is the writer of a memoir called Boy Erased that's now a movie that came out on the 2nd. It's, it's a pretty big movie. It's, it stars Lucas Hedges and um, Joel Egerton, Ru- Russell Crowe, Nicole Kidman. But also the memoir Boy Erased is about Garrett's experience going to conversion therapy when he was 19 years old. And together with the new movie, also from our friends at Stitcher and uh, Jad Abumrad, the co-creator of Radiolab, there's a new podcast series called Unerased. It's about the history of conversion therapy in America. You can check out a trailer that will play right after I speak now. This is a trailer for um, the new podcast Unerased. And then we will go right into an interview uh, with Garrett just to give you a little bit of a heads up uh, towards the 50-minute mark. Uh, maybe 45, we start to talk a little bit about um, Gary's experience as a survivor of sexual assault. So that stuff is in here. Um, but I also, I, I really love this conversation. And one way to, you know, deal with trauma that I hope makes sense to you all here is to not make uh, Garrett <laughs> relive it uh, constantly, even in an interview setting. So there's a lot of stuff here where we're just people talking to each other. And I hope that if you want to hear more about his story beyond what we got to in this 60 Minutes, that you'll check out either his memoir, Boy Erased, or the new movie uh, that is already in theaters. Hey, this is Jad Abumrad. Conversion therapy is an attempt to change people from gay to straight to either shock the gay way or pray the gay way. Over 700,000 people in America have been put through this. That's the equivalent of the city of Boston. We had to write these uh, MIs, these moral inventories, where we had to write down three different sexual experiences that we had. Um, So like I performed a sex act on this person in the backseat of a taxi. And you're analyzing it and dissecting it. What did I feel? What was I looking for? But this is when it got really... This is when it just got really, really... It felt evil. 
Homosexuality is in fact a mental illness which has reached epidemiological proportions. That's Eliza building. St. Elizabeth's building for... Sexual psychopaths. The purpose of this presentation... Oh, that door looks open. It's rusted metal. It does look open. ...is to demonstrate the therapeutic use with homosexuals who wish to change. Whoa. Oh, my God. If the patient fails to switch it off, you get a shock. Where, where were the rules sort of explained and outlined for you guys? I mean, so we just signed in, and then we were handed this giant handbook, and we were told by the staff, you need to memorize everything in it. First Corinthians 6, 9, 9. There were Bible verses. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Every single page. Rules. So, the kind of clothes we wore. No hugging or physical touch between clients. The way we sat. Brief handshakes. Crossed our legs. How we looked at our nails. It was like seeing the word of God. I was battling with God at that point. Why are you doing this to me? Like, give me back my family. Give me back what I love. Unerased, a podcast series that will restore the deleted history of conversion therapy in America. From Focus Features, Stitcher, and Limina House, the first episode of Unerased is out right now. Find Unerased in your podcast app and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still I usually start the podcast, but usually I mean always, by having my guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, I am Garrett Conley, author of Boy Erased, soon to be a, a major motion picture, and uh, it's about conversion therapy. Spoiler alert, I'm still gay. Sure, Didn't yeah, work. and it's it's a major motion picture, it's a book, but it's also uh, your your life. Yeah, also my life. I always forget that part. <laughs> right, right now everyone's <laughs> well, just like... Not for, I'm not going to let you forget that for a second. I want you <laughs> to live in your trauma. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, everyone's um, just like, what about Nicole's wig? And I'm like, yeah, also mm, my life. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nicole's wig is so many of our lives. Uh, when yeah. you say Nicole, you're talking about Nicole Kidman, yes, yes. who stars in the film. Can you... Can you tell me some of the other folks that are involved in the film? Yes. So um, Lucas Hedges plays me and Russell Crowe is my father. And uh, oh, my God, so many people that I absolutely love. Cherry Jones plays the doctor um, who basically gave me a a bit of reason in the middle of chaos and uh, told me that maybe things weren't the way that my parents believed things were. Um, And then we have Troy Sivan. And um, Xavier Dolan, the French-Canadian gay director, uh, and a bunch of other great folks in it. Yeah. How confusing. Um, I just mean, like, your specific story, you go through so much, and then you, like, figure out that who you are, and everything kind of makes a little mm-hmm. more sense. And then you're on set watching people perform act like I, I could just yeah. imagine that this is another level of um like ser- surreality on top of um what i'm sure has already been a pretty surreal set of experiences yeah i mean i think uh when you write a memoir it's already kind of strange because you're like was the tea kettle blue or green oh my god i'm a liar i didn't remember it perfectly <laughs> um <laughs> and i'm like is oprah gonna scream at me i don't know um, but, uh, but then, you know, cause memory is imperfect as we all know. 
And uh, and then you ask a bunch of other people. Like I kept referring to my mom's memories to to try to reconstruct so much. So that removed me from the past in some strange ways where I was like, do I even remember anything anymore? Um, and then the movie, you know, is it is it another translation of that? And, uh, you know, it's it's added to and subtracted in certain ways to to create drama. And you're like, I don't I don't even know what's real anymore. <laughs> How are you doing emotionally watching watching like a person who's you go through something that was, I'm sure, pretty hard? I mean, there's a certain distance. The The character's name is Jared, not Garrett. Real big difference there. Um, <laughs> I I think for me, memoir is so much about internality and, and sort of uh, you're using your voice to cushion things or, you know, make things more literary and you're using great imagery and so you can make dark things really beautiful. Um, with this film, you know, Joel Edgerton, the director's aim was always to create something that could be used for activism and and really speak to a lot of people. Um, and so you don't get the same perspective. Like, you know, my book is inherently queer because I'm a queer writer. And this movie is sort of straddling a line where we're trying to get parents and and people around LGBT people that might be making these decisions to really get on board with ending conversion therapy, or at least, you know, low bar, <laughs> just don't torture kids. Um, and that's a very different project. So it's it's strange to like see these two very different versions of it. And now we have a podcast that's coming out with the Radiolab team called Unerased um, when the when the film drops November second, and it's that's a whole other different you know version of events and we see the full history of conversion therapy from the 1950s on um so you know it's cool but it's also really mind shatteringly strange for me <laughs> to be yeah sitting here. yeah i mean i'm asking about like how you're doing because so i um i mean I've always, i'm always really personal in the stand-up that i do and uh, over the summer i released a stand-up an hour of stand-up about sexual assault that's called rape jokes mm -hmm. and I didn't like I didn't think about making it wasn't even that that difficult like it not it just like I went out and I was with people it felt active you know like it felt like um there was a little bit of distance from it, it was really hard doing press uh because then I started to have to sort of relive a lot of experiences mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's what's going on for you yes. but I just have compassion for where you're <laughs> Thank at Thank you. And um, I, it's really tough. You know, it's tough to like, but it's important, right? You you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't want to put yourself in this position to educate people, to share your story. But I'm just like looking in your eyes and yeah, I, you I can hope see you're it. okay. You can see it. Yeah, I hope I you're mean, okay. I mean, it's sort of like at this point, I'm at the finish line, you know, and I'm, I'm trying you're to so get close. through it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> but I'm also like, okay, let's get some other people's stories out there. You know, let's yes. let's get other personal stories because I know how important personal stories are for making people change their mind. Um, but I'm also like, okay, we've got the the cis white story. Let's get some trans stories out there. Let's get some people of color stories out there and move beyond, you know, just my story because it's, first of all, it's exhausting. Second of all, we need that to happen because, mm -hmm. you know, especially right now with, with the administration trying to erase trans people's lives, it's like conversion therapy writ large. So I'm so ready for that discussion to begin. Trans people are three to four times more likely to be put in conversion therapy than somebody like me. I'm so glad that you are the person that is going to be, 
I don't know, sort of like emblematic um, for at least a little while of this experience because what you just said is like exactly what I would hope somebody yeah. from our community <laughs> would say when put in yeah. this position, not the like um, – I'm emblematic and this is where it stops. But I think Ugh. it's really important for all queer folks to remember that, like, our family members yeah. that are not white and cisgendered, you know, are dealing with a bunch of other marginalized identities uh, yeah. intersecting. And we, we're we in do. this together. I mean, it's going to get a lot worse and we have to, like, really stick together and and make sure the most vulnerable are protected. Like we have to use yes, every bit of yes. our privilege to do that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's every time you're on a talk show, that's it. You've got mm-hmm. it. You're talking point. You nailed yep. it. You're so I'm, prepped. I'm you're ready to it. go. <laughs> I've been talking to the trans lifeline folks. I've been like, we got Oh, they're get, great. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they're great. Um, yeah, it's 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 exciting, I guess, even to have um, you know, some idea of who sh- you should reach out to. Mm-hmm. That's what's kind of cool about you know, we so often talk about like how shitty social media is and yeah. like the the nonsense it brings into our mm-hmm. lives. But then it's also like, well, now I at least like know the name yep. of the organization that provides a it lifeline is for so trans cool. folks. Yeah, I mean, you that's know? my favorite thing about this whole experience is how so many different LGBTQ organizations have have gotten behind the film and the podcast, and and then like also my education in that because I really. You know, I I wasn't planning to become this person who was like a spokesperson for ending conversion therapy. But now that I am, it's really fun to get this education and like actually know shit. Like I can actually say like, here are the stats and here's where you go and and here's what you do. And it's so much, so much better than when I started where I was like, I have no idea what happened to me. I have no idea. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about maybe we'll start there because that seems like, um, you know, I think. For a lot of folks, if you are um, the type of person who's trying to squash, like, a need for protecting LGBT folks, the easy thing to say is that conversion therapy is a thing of the past. Yeah. Of course, that's, like, not true. (laughs) So could you maybe give me some information on where we actually are? Yeah. So it's estimated between 700 and 800,000 Americans have been through conversion therapy. 22,000 are currently affected by it in some way in in the U.S. alone. So we don't have stats on other countries. I know that Exodus International, the big umbrella group that controlled all of these different places that were running, I think there were like 200-something in the country when I went, they exported this to so many different places. And, um, you know, a lot of the really negative um, legislation that's come out against LGBTQ people has ties to... Um, to some of this ex-gay rhetoric that was thrown around. And, and we're, we're currently trying to find out more info on that. I mean, this law firm, uh, McDermott, Will, and Emery, are, they're working with the Mattachine Society, which is one of the oldest LGBTQ yeah. groups in the country. Um, they just made this amazing white paper um, that it can be used you know, in legal battles in the future, we hope, that basically traces the whole history of conversion therapy from the 1950s. Like, I didn't know that um, St. Elizabeth's Hospital outside of Washington, D.C., which was government-funded, um, was basically a torture chamber for for queer people because they were using lobotomies, you know, electroshock therapy, straitjackets, all the things that you think of when you might first think of conversion therapy. They were done there. And the Eisenhower administration actually um, sent many of their... Of, their members to uh, St. Elizabeth's whenever they were found out 
um, for being LGBTQ. And, and then they would be basically tortured. You know, they would be given electroshock therapy. And then they would be asked to call their friends and basically talk to them as though nothing had changed so that people could inform, you know, could find out who else was gay. Um, and it was just, oh yeah, wow. it was terrible. Wow. Our, you know. Well, I mean, <laughs> I want to, first of all, I mean, the one thing that I'm immediately struck by the name of that hospital, um, religiously yes. affiliated. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Catholic? Actually, it's probably. Some, some, I mean, it has to be. you know, from, yeah, I think that that's something else that like, um, underlies a lot of this that we don't talk about mm-hmm. very much um, because I was raised really Catholic and you know one thing that we I just think we don't like we're, when you're when you're raised in this culture we don't even talk about or think about how we allowed like we, we say we live in this place where there's like a separation of church and state but that being said we allowed specifically the Catholic Church to um, run uh, health organizations mm-hmm. and and educational organizations and then they, you know, have like football teams and stuff. So yep. it's like we, it feels very normalized. Like I remember um, a couple years ago when everything was coming out about Scientology and like going clear was a bit, and I live in LA, you know, you live in LA, yeah? No, I'm actually in New no. York, but. Yeah, well, oh, I, I'm in New York I've right now. You're in LA. Here a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, you know, you live in LA. People were talking about um, Scientology all the time. Just like, can you believe that they're just, um, that this organization is, you know, savvy enough to try and work its way into an organ, to an institution like Hollywood yeah. to get like acceptance? And I'm like, oh, I. No, I can totally believe that because I was raised in an institution that like worked its way into education and um, the healthcare system yeah. so as to normalize beliefs and then like put them into our bodies. You oh, know? Yeah. And so oh, yeah. um, that's that's like a part of a lot of this that and when you're talking about, you know, international mm-hmm. exporting of these ideas, it's like so often the folks doing that work are there if they come from the U.S. with some sort of religious mission. so Yep. My dad has this um, on his church wall in the back. There's this huge, like, map of the world um, that's painted there. And he has these tacks, these red tacks for every place where there's a mission. And it terrifies me <laughs> to look at that wall. It is terrifying, <laughs> yeah. Cause it, it is. It's terrifying. Because yeah, you're like, what are they saying? Really? What are they saying? Oh, I mean, places? yeah, we know I what they're saying. Know. Yeah. And yeah. I, I would, when you were talking about the how the Catholic Church did that and how Scientology did that, I was like, hmm, I wonder what other group has weaseled its way into, say, an administration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, also, um, evangelicals made themselves really important to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's a part of this administration. And and I feel like if you're a young person, maybe you also don't even realize that, like, that's – that actually – that didn't always look this extreme. Like, the, um, the like, overt connection with evangelical mm-hmm. Christians wasn't always as uh, – for, much at the forefront. Yeah, they were, they were a little now. bit more sly in the past. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. There was some, and, uh, and I mean, what's worse, sly or know. just obvious? Well, I mean, it's impossible to know what's worse. That's like the big question in like Trump versus Pence. Which one? Yeah. <laughs> which one's worse? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you want to know that you're hated or do you want to know that you're hated? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like all this sort of, I, I had my education and my political education during the George W. Bush you know, re-election campaign where he was running basically on the marriage amendment. And I remember seeing like a map of the country being like, oh, okay, like that worked. 
Like there was like a map with like, you know, it was red in the places where people were like really going towards, you know, reelecting him because of the marriage amendment. And I was like, okay, that turns out that that really works. And I don't know, you know, of course I had it my, does horrible, really work. my my horrible story, but I also was still shocked like that on a national level that was working as well. You know, I was just listening to like earlier when I was getting ready uh, to talk to you today, I was listening to Fresh Air and there was a guest on there. I didn't even catch his name because I like put it on at the very last minute, but that was talking about the Supreme Court and talking about um, same sex marriage and using the phrase social issue again and again, social Mm -hmm. issue again and again, social issue, same sex marriage, social issue, same sex marriage. And I think, um, you know, to speak to your point about the map, it's like we we still live in a in a country where um, you know we're people. Mm-hmm. I'm not a social issue. <laughs> I'm a true. human. You're I'm not a human a problem. being. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that um, my life is an issue, you know. And by the way, that's how we speak also about like um, you know equal like like women getting yeah. uh, paid equally or like uh, black folks not being like shot mm-hmm. by the police. We talk about them like social they're social issues. issues and no, uh, we're and we're human beings. Yeah. So I think. I think that that is one way that makes it really easy to talk about um, a hot, like to talk about something like that. You you you, ca- you make it a social issue. Yeah. You make it something that can show up on a map. Meanwhile, if you actually looked at that map and you like, you know, drew little tiny people on there, there'd be gay people in all those yep. red places too. So exactly. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to where. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up geographically. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so small town Arkansas in the Mississippi Delta region um about an hour from memphis maybe an hour and a half uh it was a my the first place i grew up in had a population of 100 people so wow yeah it was like the church and my family's business which they they ran a cotton gin which um has its own history um (laughs) and they they took over it i guess in 1950 and uh they you know if you know anything about a cotton gin you just like you run cotton through all these different like crazy complicated machines to try to clean it then you put it into a bale and then it uh gets manufactured but uh they I ran- certainly don't know anything about a cotton yeah gym, so thank you a for lot of people exp- don't I, I just wanted to take that moment here <laughs> yeah. on this platform to really educate people on the way that you get your cotton <laughs> in your clothes <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so yeah that's those were like the two businesses and um and so church being one of them was incredibly important for a sense of community. And for the most part, you know, until my sexuality was in conflict with these belief systems, it felt like a really nice family. Um, You know, all of us went to church. We hung out. We had potlucks. We, you know, went to each other's houses on on holidays. And, um, you know, I was too young to understand that there was also racism, xenophobia, homophobia around me and then you know as I grew older those things came to the surface but uh we moved to we actually moved my father lost the cotton gin we moved to this other town called Cherokee Village Arkansas um, politically correct name and then my dad started a Ford dealership and became a preacher at the same time which there's some overlap there in the car salesman preacher categories sure um when I was 16, we were sitting in, in this church and my dad started shaking and crying. And my mom and I looked at each other like, what is happening? This is scary. Uh, and he, he went down to the front of the church and and the preacher 
looked out at the congregation. He said, a preacher has been born like Herschel Conley, my dad's name, uh, is is now going to work for the Lord and everything's going to be different now. And my mom and I were standing up with him and people were hugging us and congratulating us. And my mom like turned to me. I think it was like then or at some point that day, she was like, I did not sign up for this. And I was like, wow, mm, neither did I. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hear that. Actually, that was going to be a question that I asked next. Um I guess how were women treated in that situation? Because because I've you know you don't really that doesn't ha- there isn't like a, a woman that's sitting in that audience that like shakes and cries and then like walks to the front no. and then is and then people go oh a a, a preacher a pastor <laughs> yeah, a more. bishop like that's not that doesn't even that's not a thing in certain um, churches and, I guess maybe but not that one. Uh, I don't know the, I don't know, I've never heard of those churches I'm yeah. serious like what yeah. are those churches um, I think it's pretty much a thing that can happen for. Um, dudes and almost we have like a political wives mm-hmm. sort of situation if it's if it's a faith where um you can have a wife where mm-hmm. you can be married then it's that you know when i say political wives you know you know what i mean the person yeah. just has to stand there and like be like the the good wife tv show yeah, <laughs> yeah. like the good wife tv show yeah so is that, is that what that was like for your mom you think totally i mean she she to this day still says you know i'm a preacher's wife but i'm not a preacher's wife <laughs> and um and it, it was a real shock to our household because pretty much instantly everything was policed in our lives. Um, my mom is this, you know, I call her a spot of technicolor in my book. She's just this person who is, you know, larger than life. Um, she hates it when I say this, but like she is a Dolly Parton-esque person who just like is when, she hates it when you say she's a Dolly S yeah, person well she, that to me is like I know can somebody I, please say that about me I just mean one time? I'm a worshiper of Dolly so it doesn't you know, <laughs> I don't quite understand it but um she has a different context for Dolly I think but, sure sure <laughs> but um you know she's just this person that that when she enters a room everyone is paying attention to and um being a preacher's wife she she was sort of forced to um, in many ways, convert you know her own appearance and and the way she was acting. She couldn't be too excited or too like you know she, her humor is kind of dark and fun, but you know she, you can't really do that in that setting very often. Where you're like, I mean, one yeah. one joke for example that my mom was telling uh, <laughs> during those years, she was like, you know, it would be a great idea, like if we had one of those. Girls Gone Wild videos, but like it's preachers' wives gone wild because I think it'd just make a lot of money with all those perverts out there that want that. And you know, like she's like making that joke in front of people. She's not wrong. <laughs> no, I think it would make a lot of money, honestly. Get her on the horn. <laughs> I'm, I'm I want to produce that. Um, yeah, I I I hear you. Well, so when you say suddenly everything was patrolled. Yeah. Do you mean like, so growing up, were you getting, and you were, you know, you had, the, and the church was a business that was in your town. Were you, do you mean that like once your dad was in the public eye, like he's stepping forward, then again, it's like that political yeah. thing where you're, now you have to be this perfect example of mm-hmm. Christianity. I mean, he had been, he's always been someone who's charismatic. So people flock to him. Um, and he actually ran like these Sunday school lessons before work days with at the gym and, and at the dealership. And like there were signs up in the dealership that were like, no cursing allowed. This is the God. This is God's business. You know, things like that. 
Um, speaking of separation of church and state, yeah, this yeah, wasn't yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, not to go off on this tangent, but I mean, I was in a public high school and they didn't teach evolution because they believed it was evil. So I'll leave it at that. Yes. Right, I know? mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I didn't get any sex ed because um, the Catholic Church doesn't really believe in sex ed. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. when you when you put we just really don't talk about the long term effects of placing faith in mm-hmm. schooling. I agree. And it, and it happens to such a large percentage of our population. Yeah. Um, and especially for queer folks. I know. Because you know, to, to, there's like, the, there's one thing is your relationship with your preacher and your relationship with your parents or your relationship with the adults in your community. But like a teacher is also such a specific thing because they're supposed to be like maybe a little bit less, um, like, because they're teaching you math. Yeah, yeah. You know, so they're teaching you things that are like, True. Yeah. Like this is it's just straight up true that two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. So when that person says to you um that like, you know, you're a sin, that's there's some there's some different type of damage. I that's think that's a going really on there. interesting point. I've actually never I like I've always intuitively understood that, but I've never thought of that. How you are being taught real things and at the yeah. same time you're being taught something that's totally a lie and fake. You know, like pretty fucking sin. sinister, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty sinister. I know. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. So you um, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. <laughs> oh, oh, what a relief then to suddenly yeah, be the focus of so great. much energy. Yeah, <laughs> you're an only child, and that already has so much energetic focus. And I know. Wouldn't it be great if it could be kicked up a notch? <laughs> well, narratively, yeah. I guess it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay, so you're you're like in, you're a teen. Yes. Yeah, so is all happening. so basically, you know. Uh, we could we would be watching TV or we'd go to a movie to like have a normal moment. You know, my dad was like surrounding himself by preachers and and the word of God at all points. But it'd be like, let's go watch this stupid, you know, action movie. And if someone said like one curse word or or anything like that, he would walk out. But people could like shoot each other like and kill each other violently and that didn't matter. Um <laughs> you know. Yeah, I do know. So, I do know. So yeah. it was a it was a strange environment where um, certain things were very policed. Like I, it wouldn't be if I like, you know, suddenly went hunting and like shot deer illegally at, in the wrong season. That wouldn't be something that I would necessarily get in trouble for, because that would be like, oh, you're being a man, and like, it's fine. You know, I know all the police in town; it'll be okay. That sort of attitude was was around me at all times at that point, and so. The things that were police were like my behavior, whether or not I had a girlfriend, you know, what was I reading the Bible enough? Was I saved? Was I trying to witness to people? You know, there was a big emphasis on I used to go with my my dad to to walk around the neighborhood, um, which, you know, there's a church in every corner, but we're still making sure everyone is saved at all points. And and we would go into these neighborhoods and just knock on doors and say, you know, the, the regular spiel, like, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart today? Just today, you know. Um, did you feel like you had, did you feel saved? Did yeah, you feel like that was real for you? This is a strange part of, of my life that I think is is really rich for literature and hard to describe in in, like, life life when you're talking to friends. But, you know, I did have that religious experience. I was, I think, 12 years old and, um, I mean, I can explain it in a secular way, and then I can explain it in the way that I felt then, which was like, I I remember praying 
to God and being and feeling really fearful of everything and and then suddenly feeling like this immense love like just this pure experience of love that I haven't really felt since and I said that I was saved from that experience I don't know what it was I mean religious experience has always been a mystery for a lot of people um but you know I I would now with my the brain that I have now say that that was a, a you know, just experiencing love and self-acceptance and and realizing that I'm okay with who I am for a moment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was it. Well, I mean, it depends on like how much of a hippie you are because um, <laughs> God is love. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, I think if you like, again, I'm actually, I'm like an atheist now, mm-hmm. but I, um, I was a theology major. So like, I've, I really have a I'm very interested in exactly the thing you're talking about, yeah. which is that feelings of human connection are real. Feelings of connection to a larger world are real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being awed by beauty, like natural beauty or the yeah. beauty of another person. Like there is um, just an, an irrefutable feeling there. Like, of course, you know, and that's also why all faiths exist, because mm-hmm. for the entirety of human history, we've we've all felt that thing and we've tried to write about it or we've tried to describe it to each other like mm-hmm. you just did with me, yeah. you know, and um, and that's because it does matter. I mean, like, you know, it an AA meeting and a church service and people that are really intentionally sitting down for dinner, mm-hmm. like the feeling of... I care about you. I'm present with you. Like that's, it's, um, you know, we're getting like a dopamine rush to mm-hmm. our system and um, we're feeling that there's a reason for being alive. That's all really real. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think you can train yourself to recognize that more often. And, and I think great art does that as well. And and friends do that for each other as well. So, yeah, yeah. we're in church yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. Yeah. Well, I, something that always struck me, uh, you know, because it, like we have been trying to describe the same experiences, but we've just been using like different words. Mm-hmm. There's this really there's this um, some some in the Catholic Church, there are some saints that are mystics and mystics have like big feelings, like almost like sorcerer type feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, they tell these stories and like that's why they become saints. Like one of them, St. Teresa, is um, and, and in Rome, there's a really famous the ecstasy, uh, right? Yeah, Saint I Teresa in ecstasy, it's beautiful, so right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful statue, and um, she's about to be like pierced mm-hmm. through the heart yeah. by um, an arrow that's being delivered by an angel, and the arrow is God's love. And that Saint Teresa's story is she was a nun, and she would like uh, sort of in the night be um, filled with like these huge rushes of pleasure, and mm-hmm. it's described very sexually. Yeah. And, like, that she'd be, like, pierced by God's love and she would have, like, this big release. And it's wild because I'm like, oh, like, orgasm. Like, yeah, you're actually yeah. – like, I think I think <laughs> what she's experiencing is, mm-hmm. like, orgasm, which, I, you know, okay. Yeah, that is holy. Or, what, yeah. you know, like, if, if that word means anything, then, like, I'd put that in there or whatever. Yeah, you I know? agree. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you look at people trying to solve – but they're like, no, it's like angels coming in with, like, a – I'm like – yeah, I guess it is. You know, like it's <laughs> sure, yeah. Whatever you want to yeah. say depends to... on what you think angels are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I hear you that like there was some realness. It was real. Um, for you. There was something real there. I think it's really important to you know, 
especially as a writer, I think it's important for me to like to make sure that I never try to place my current, you know, mental state too much directly onto. I mean, I, of course, you always do when you look back at a memory. You're like relacquering it with some new finish. Um, but but I always think it's important to like remember what as with as much accuracy as possible what it felt like and what you thought it was at that time. And to not yeah. be like, oh, that wasn't that, you know, unless it's like you were, you know, like in my conversion therapy experience, like I was in a cult. So I don't I don't listen to those thoughts. Right. <laughs> right. But, but the ones that weren't so negative and, and didn't seem to like be intent on like destroying my soul. <laughs> I Do you have ways of claiming that now like you said with friends do you feel that access point now for that same sort of feeling or maybe not for which feeling, feeling but like, the, like for that feeling of that you were talking about being 12 yeah have you do you do you have that feeling now um sometimes i think my mom is is my is my access point for that i think she she's been there with me the whole time and and yes she made a, a terrible mistake by agreeing to what my father said she should do um but like for the most part, she's been a witness to my life and and I've been one for, for this part of her life. So it's easy to like bring back that world with her. Um, mm. And I think that's what friend, you know, friends do as well in addition to family because and, and fam, you know, friends that become family. Because the other day I was, I was doing an interview and I was so tired and I remember I – I was like talking about what conversion therapy did to me and how it, it cut me off from so many friends, like how I didn't feel like I could talk to them and they wouldn't understand me. And my friend Amber had written me this letter that was very beautiful, but it, it was also very like, you know, it was holding me accountable. And it said, I don't know if you know what it feels like to be on the other side of this friendship and to to hear silence when I'm trying to reach to you. And and I don't know how long I can keep doing this. It's really hard for me. And wow. it, and I was telling that story again, and I just like started bawling. And it was like I went back to all of that therapy stuff again. And I think I think friends give you access to friends and family. You know, the good people that were there for you. They they give you access to to that time where you really learned something very important about yourself. You know. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. That's an amazing sentiment. <laughs> I'm like stuck in thought on that Aww. for a moment. Yeah. And Thinking of your friends. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I'm like, shit, I need to write more friends' write. letters. <laughs> I gotta get, I gotta actually have to go and cut this interview short because I just have to write yeah. a few letters to some friends. Okay, go ahead. Um, but <laughs> Everyone now go write letters. <laughs> yeah, pause, pause the pod. Yeah. Go write a letter to your friends. <laughs> This episode of Query is sponsored by Daily Harvest. When you need healthy fuel fast, turn to Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers perfectly portioned cups of frozen organic fruits and vegetables directly to your door. All you have to do is add water or your favorite milk to your cup, just blend it or heat and enjoy. Daily Harvest's new savory harvest bowls are an amazing healthy dinner that's faster than takeout. And their new plant-based ready-to-blend protein smoothies will keep you ready for work or the gym. Each of their dessert-inspired flavors packs in at least 10 grams of protein with no chalky powders. Daily Harvest sent me some samples. I like that they're ready-to-eat cups. I like that you could probably take them to work if you work somewhere that isn't your house, but I work at my house. Also, if you work at your house, you could even make them there. Super portable, 
Super fresh, daily harvest. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter the promo code QUERY to get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code QUERY for three free daily harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. That's daily-harvest.com. Today's episode of Query is sponsored by Helix. There's nobody on the planet like you, so why would you buy a generic mattress built for everyone else? Helix Sleep built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences with the perfect mattress. Go to helixsleep.com query and take their two-minute sleep quiz. And hey, if you sleep with another human being, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. That's amazing. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, they're offering $125 off all mattress orders. Whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, if you like a plush or firm bed, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com query. That's helixsleep.com query for $125 off your first mattress order. You, I mean, I, I want to talk about what actually happened, yeah. and it feels like this is the moment We've been to like talk a little bit. <laughs> well, I don't feel yeah. so much skirting, yeah. but like, I, I just want to know some stuff. But yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, so you're, you're a teen. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you know, when did you know that you were a gay person? I knew what, I mean, no is like a really broad term for me for that period of time because yeah, I my first ex, my first feelings, um, in which I knew I was different was like third grade and I had this teacher, Mr. Smith, who was very cute, and um, he I remember thinking like, oh, I want to get him something, I want to buy something for him, I need to like have a transaction where I give him this thing. Um, and I remember I went to my mom and I was like, mom, can we buy Mr. Smith something really great? And she was like, what do you think we should buy him? And I knew he was like this really, he was really into the Arkansas Razorbacks, which I think is like a football team. <laughs> I don't, I think it's one of the football teams there. Um, and, uh, and mom, who knows? I no know. one on this podcast. Keep going. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, what if we bought him a mailbox and made it to where it was painted with Arkansas Razorbacks, like this big hog. And uh, that's what I gave him. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. My crush. My first crush got a, a hog mailbox. That's my <laughs> older sister once, and this is like a straight person, but I think it is very confusing, the feelings that we have for our teachers. I think mm-hmm. she was a little in love with the teacher of hers, and she called into, I was like with her. Her teacher was retiring, even though she was like pretty young. And we called into the radio station. We requested George, George Michael's uh, one more time, which it, which has like which is which has like a lot of has a lot of the word teacher in it, but yeah. it's definitely about like a um, like having like a daddy in like the gay community. Yeah. It's definitely about like two men and one is a daddy. <laughs> and we requested it, and they definitely played it. We like caught it on cassette, being like, "This goes out from a, a third grader." And a seventh grader <laughs> to their favorite teacher. And the teacher was <laughs> George fired. Michaels it's one more time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, but I love that. So I love be that an mailbox. Investigation today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, there would be totally investigation. Um, but that's just because we don't know what the word teacher meant. Yeah. Look, you're just doing the. You're like it says teacher. This yeah. is what this other one. So you you were in third grade and you yeah. had some awareness, and, and then, then then there was just like. like there was like a long period of, you know, back and forth. I, 
as you hit puberty, you realize certain things. And, and it was like, I would, I would type in like gay on the internet, you know, the early internet, this is before Facebook. And, um, you got a lot of different things when you typed in gay back then. And they weren't all positive, and and a lot of it was just porn that would, would come up. And um, so I would try. Also takes forever. Yeah, it does. Fifty six k. So I would try to like find out things, and I would I would even like temporarily join like a chat room. And I don't know if you remember these kinds of chat rooms, like when it was like Yahoo Chat, and it would be like yes. ASL, you know, age, sex, location, and then it's like right, right after that, it's like just sex talk, like nonstop. So I wasn't ready for that. I was I I didn't find myself at that point fitting into any of the iterations of what gay meant on the internet and then you know the the few things that I was allowed to see or that I saw um of LGBTQ people like were usually pretty negative. Um you know, this was the Matthew Shepard era. So everyone at my church was like talking about how this is what happens when you, you know, are out and proud and, and someone will attack you and you'll, you'll end up like Matthew. And, um, and the churches were really pretty terrible about that. I mean, they, they had a sort of, he had it coming to him mentality. And, um, wow, that makes me very angry. Yeah, I know. I know. I was too nice to them in my book, I think. Sometimes. <laughs> but I did talk about that. Um, and, and then there was also just like this sense that, uh, you would die of AIDS like instantly, just like somehow, you know, without, it's like you say you're gay and then you're just suddenly on the hospital bed. And yes. Love in Action actually, um, which is the name of the the conversion therapy place that I went to, the absurd name, um, they, they used this kind of fear mongering in their promotional materials. And John Smith himself, who was the head of Love in Action at that time, um, he, he even describes, I found this later while doing research, um, in a newsletter, he describes going to visit a gay man who's dying of AIDS. And it's like this really visceral description of, of the visit and, and his health. And then he says, you know, this is why we need to make sure you give as much money as you can to us so that we can prevent other people from turning out this way. And it's just a really sinister um, cynical attempt to to get money from people, and what we can talk a little bit. I hope it's not true. Later. Yeah, it's not true at all. I hope. Just in I hope case he, well, no, I just that. mean I hope he. I hope <laughs> yeah. he made that visit up because you know you could also oh, that could also yeah. be a visit that You're you right. made. You know, I hope it's a. I hope it's made. I up. hope it's not true. I hope, I hope that, he just like googled. Yeah, <laughs> that person's memory is not actually exploited by. Yeah, I by hope it's man. not true. And we can but talk yeah. a little bit later about, about John Smith's about face and and how complicated all that was but but you know i think you have to hold people accountable for what they did in in the past no matter where they end up and to me that's one of the most sinister things that the church and love and action peddled and and they did that actually do you want to just tell me now i mean what is where is this person well john now? smith is now married to a man living in paris texas and making furniture uh some stereotypes work and he's <laughs> He's, you know, he's um, he's doing a lot of things that are much better now. Like he's been giving, he first of all, he, you know, he left Love in Action and 
I think it was like 2007, 2008. And, um, and he said, it never worked. None of this ever worked. I'm sorry. You know, he wrote this long apology. And one of the responses, which I, I really enjoyed, actually, in a sort of, you know, in a sense of justice way, was this response that just listed all the people who'd committed suicide and been in love and action and said, it's never going to be okay. Um, and I think that's true. I also think that John is trying to actually spread the message of like, I really, really fucked up. I'm, I'm trying, you know, please let me apologize. Let me do whatever I can to debunk this myth that I peddled for so long. And he gave, um, all of his love in action materials, like boxes and boxes of, of records and promotional materials to the Smithsonian. Um, and now it's housed there forever along with my handbook, um, that I took away from the camp. And it's, you know, it's not ever going to be, I'm never going to want to just like sit in the same room with him and hang out. But, um, and he's always going to be responsible for those deaths and for ruining like a decade of my life in many ways. Um, but I, I think it's important to also acknowledge that people that are doing terrible things can also begin to do better things. You know? Right. I'm, I mean, <laughs> right there. I- I think it is important to acknowledge that only because other otherwise for the folks who are trying to do right the whole time, what is the goal, right? Yeah, like if you exactly. if you don't assume that it's a goalpost that can be moved. Yeah. So it's not even like necessarily for the benefit of that person, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, I truly believe that. Um, but I think, yeah, I also, I also something that's always troubling about a story like that is that you know, I think for us, for pe- folks in the queer community, there are so many of those stories that there's the burden of, oh, this person is truly homophobic, so they must be gay. And I really mm-hmm. hate, yeah, I, no, hate right? <laughs> I hate that stereotype because it puts the hate back in us. Like we're That's actually the, yeah. the only bad actors. Like nothing is ever done outside of us. So it's like not only are we disgusting and wrong, but also like we create I our own oppression. I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I feel like, what you know, Yes, there are so many stories like that, and I and I also never like when people go like um, to somebody who isn't like a Mike Pence type of a person. Yeah, there, there's so much floating around that people are like, "Well, he's just gay himself," and to me, that I'm like a little bit like, "Fuck you!" If yeah. that's somebody's takeaway, because like to assume that the only place this could come from is our own community um, means that we've created our oppression. I, I hadn't I don't even believe thought that. of that. That's that's a good point. Um, yeah, because I think it's an easy way out, like to say that straight people aren't actually actively oppressing LGBTQ people. That they <laughs> and, haven't been part a party to it the whole time. Yeah, yeah. You know that there weren't parents sending all those kids, mm-hmm. and that it was just like uh, the person that you know. It's just John at the head, and it's not like every other person who's also participating. Well, yeah. So and anyway, and and I do you know just I won't stay on this soapbox for long, but. I hate how media is so hungry for the demon turned angel story. They're so hungry for it. They've given John a platform consistently. Like he doesn't even have to ask for it. He doesn't have to fight his way into it. He just has it anytime he wants it. And it's been that way for a very long time. And only now I feel our survivor stories being told on their own terms. I'm so ready for that to happen. I cannot take any more of the 
apology tour. Um, let's rehabilitate this dark man and turn him into an angel. It's happening all over. And Alan Chambers, who's the head, who was the head of Exodus International, you know, he was on like Oprah's channel. Like he had all of this like really big press. And now he's doing this apology tour. And I, I just can't be a part of that. Um, I find that very disturbing. Um, while I, while I can maintain the fact that they are human beings and I can say like they're complex human beings, I don't want to turn them entirely into demons. I also don't want to be responsible for doing a rehabilitation tour of these people who, who enacted torture on, on our lives, you know? Yeah, it overvalues it overvalues them the same way that they were overvalued before. Yeah, and like, it here's a person at the center. Yeah, again. Yeah, you know what? You and I we <laughs> agree on this point. We couldn't. I mean, this is truly why I released that that hour of sex, of material about sexual assault mm-hmm. that I was talking about earlier because I was just seeing this circle where it was like bad actor is found out. You know, um, we hear more about the action of the bad actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mourn our loss of that person's like art or value or whatever it is. And then like bad actor returns yeah. with potential to be good Everyone's actor. And you're ready. like, wait, wait, hang on a second. Where were any of the interviews with survivors? Where was anybody asking any of the questions I care about? Like, um, like, how are you doing? You know, so yeah, that's like honestly exactly. why I started. Thank you for you know, asking today that. by yeah. by talking about that because I think it's it is so important to check in with each other and also to know that like, you know, I value you like between you and I here on this Same. thing like like this is who I value. I value you. I value your story. Oh. I value um, you making it through and and like that's that's who I'm interested in. Thank you. And yeah. you know, I there's also like this lie that our stories aren't interesting. You know. Yes, it's, sure. It's like it's such a threadbare plot. Or relatable. The 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 demon turned angel is like such an old plot and it, right. and it's just not an interesting plot anymore right now. Like Or or yeah, or relatable because <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. still gay. You're yeah. still gay. So why should a straight person be able to relate to you when the straight person can exactly. actually relate to the bad person who became the good yeah. person but it's like if you can't if if that's a limit to your own empathy if mm-hmm. like our difference in sexuality means that suddenly like you can only relate to the straight yeah. person who wronged me or righted me like Ooh. you can't relate to me in this yeah. moment just because i have like a different haircut than you yeah. or like whatever like what a what a limited amount of empathy you have what a limited world you live in we've been stretching be our empathy since birth for a long time <laughs> we've been doing it for a long time <laughs> yeah we have we have. So you keep talking about, um, or like, you you know, you've said like the word camps and mm, yeah, um, facility. Can you tell me, yeah. yeah, can you tell me like what age, what age did you go into this facility? Yeah, let me give a little context for how I got there because it kind of, it makes more sense that way, I think. Yeah, please um, do. So I was, um, I was in my first semester of college and I was raped um, by someone that I knew and he also confessed right after he raped me, he confessed to raping a 14-year-old boy in his youth group. And this experience made me, I mean, first of all, it's terrifying, but also you're you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, everything that everyone told me about gay people is true. They're all pedophiles. And now I've entered into this like secret circle of it. Um, and it really messed me up because it, it just seemed to like affirm the really dark side of, I mean, bigotry is dark all through, but, but that especially 
dark side of of um of bigotry and i just thought oh god i'm i'm i've been like initiated into this like really terrifying world where sex is not sex it's rape um and that's what i knew and so i told you know i didn't tell anyone about my rape but i went to a pastor at my school it was a religious institution and i said this this guy that i know he raped a 14 year old boy and she said to me unless you have proof there's no reason to go forward so i didn't but i told some of my friends um that he'd done this because i just i had to like somehow get it out and they told their mother and their mother called him and he was and like yelled at him and said how could you ever do this to a young boy and so he called my mother and said that I was gay. I said to him like, you know, a couple of months before I'm having these feelings, I don't know what they are. I'd said it to him in confidence. I'd hardly told another soul. So he told my mother this as a way to preempt my saying that he'd raped me or this 14 year old boy. And he knew what that would do. He knew that calling them would just immediately like cause a shitstorm because my dad's a preacher. So my mom, um, you know, he, my mom came to come get me or see how I was doing. And in the in the meantime, he sent someone over. I mean, it sounds like if there is a true villain, it's this guy. He's like, I, I never paint him as like an okay person because I actually don't understand how much evil you could have in you to want to do this after you'd rape someone. He sent someone over to the room that I was staying in because I was terrified to be in the room. And And this person said to me, your mom's coming to get you. You're not going to be in school anymore. They're gonna they're gonna stop paying for your education. They're gonna send you somewhere. And I was just like, "What? Like I don't. I guess I don't know my parents." Um, my mom came to to college, and I was so distraught that I was like, oh, "It's it's all a lie. I'm not gay. He's just crazy." And she said, "Well, I think you should go home and see your dad anyway because it it feels like it's a something happened here." So I go home, dad takes me to the bedroom and he says, do you swear to God that you're not gay? And, you know, at this time I was so close in a relationship with what I believed to be God at the time um, that I was like, oh, I can't do that. I can't, I'm going to be struck dead. I'm like, that's horrible. And, um, and I said, no, I can't, I can't swear that. And um, he said, well, I don't see how you can be in this family if you're, if you're like this. And, um, so my mom and dad were like deliberating. They called this church in Memphis called Bellevue Baptist church. I always call them out because they were completely complicit in this whole industry. And, um, the church pastor there said, Oh no, you know, I understand Mr. Conley. This is a really tough time, but here's what you do. You send your kid to a place called Love in Action. It's in Memphis, Tennessee. They've been around for a long time. They're the best. They've got a residential program if he wants to stay. Um, they've got they've got the best stuff. And um, and here's some brochures and here's an application. And um, so my dad basically gave me that ultimatum. He said, if you don't go to this place, you're not going to be part of our family. And mom is, you know, mom was so upset. I thought, you know, she went to go vomit and I thought she was disgusted with me, but she was actually so upset that she couldn't like 
contain her emotions and she just was like vomit. And, but like for me at that time, I was like, oh my God, I've made them so disgusted by me that they're vomiting and they, they're sending me away and they don't want me to be a part of their lives. So I got that ultimatum. Um, I went back to school like the next day pretending as though nothing had happened. And I was, I was, meanwhile, I was filling out this application, which <laughs> you should see it's a, it's like harder. It's a, it's a weirder and more difficult application than like, I think getting into Harvard. Um, because, <laughs> cause it's like, have you ever, um, had any sexual thoughts, please write them down in an essay. And then it's like, um, have you ever used a Ouija board or have you, <laughs> have you ever done yoga? Yoga was seen as evil. Um, and there, I mean, you should, I can send you this <laughs> through email yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's yeah, so do crazy. It. Do it. Um, but um, and then they they required three letters of recommendation from different pastors to, and and I've in my research I've learned why they did this. It was because they wanted to vet you to make sure you weren't going to go in and expose them, because if you've mm-hmm. got all these people around you saying no, he's a good Christian, he needs help, um, then they're they're pretty sure that you're not you know going to do what I eventually did. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um. So I filled it out. I saw a therapist during my second semester of freshman year for about a six-month period, one-on-one. So I would go back on weekends, sometimes like when we were off from school. Um, I would see him, and he was connected to Love and Action. And he would basically just ask me to tell him what my sexual fantasies had been. And he would shame me. He would make me feel terrible about them. And then he would give me Bible verses to read. And they were like assignments and um, and to memorize and things like that. So then um, I passed, you know, I guess the first hurdle, got the application accepted. And there was this two-week program called The Source where in the summer you go for a two-week period and they decide whether or not you're going to stay there for three months, half a year, a year. Some people had been in there for, you know, two to five years and they were just, that's what they did with their lives. You were expected, you know, once you, once you passed the two week period, you were expected to take your own job and, uh, you know, a job that was safe. And, and then you had to like give them all your money. Um, so I went to the two week program and when I was there, uh, they placed us in a group with people who were dealing with pedophilia bestiality, um, like marriage issues. It's crazy how many different people were there. Um, people of all ages. And, and I was part, I was placed in the youth group because I was right on the edge, you know, like 18, 19. And so they're like, let's hang out with these kids. Um, and it was all under the assumption that we were sexually addicted, like addicted to our sexuality. Um, which, you know, they, I guess they, they didn't call it our sex. They called it same sex attraction. That's the big buzzword in those circles. Um, because it's not something that's inherent to you. It's something that you have right now. Right. Um, And, um, they, they used a 12 step program, simple, similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. They had like watered down Freudian theory that was used to like explain why you got the way you were, they mix that all with like heavy Bible language and like a lot of verses on every, you know, our handbooks were 
were pretty thick. They were, I think, 275 pages, and like every page had like dozens of Bible verses on it. Um, when we entered the facility, we had to give up like everything that we had on our on our person. So it was like they looked through your wallet, they looked through any notebook, your backpack, whatever, for this thing that they called a false image, which is also a, an Alcoholics Anonymous term. Um, so a false image was like anything that could distract you from becoming whole again. So like, you know, you're no longer gay or whatever. If you, if you remove anything that, that might tempt you. Um, and I remember the first day they took my notebook and I, I'd been writing these stories that were pretty innocuous and, and pretty bad. You know, they were like early short stories. They didn't have anything in them. And it, that was what was so frustrating is like, they ripped out the pages, wadded them up into a ball and just like threw it away. And they were like, oh, it's a false image. I'm like, what did I do? Like, it's like a girl alone in a forest and it's really boring. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Oh, they predicted your power. <laughs> they saw it coming. <laughs> yeah. They knew they knew you were going <laughs> to. I hope They knew so. you were going to be an enormously powerful person <laughs> via the pen. You know, maybe they, they shouldn't have. I bet, you know, if they hadn't wadded that up. Man, if, if they just hadn't it. wadded that up. Um, <laughs> wow. I don't know how much more you want to know about that, but there's there's a lot. I mean, I certainly have. Um, I have a lot more questions. Yeah, no, it's just. We're it also at a, a, we're at like an end of our time together oh, yeah. talking. Okay. And But I don't, but I, that's because, you know, I, I, want, I want to respect and preserve your time. Yeah. Um, I always only ask for 60 minutes from people mm-hmm. and we're at like 58. And the other good news is that um, folks can interact with your story in so many ways. And I do feel like a little, it's not not self-conscious or scared of your story. I do feel a little protective of uh, you. So I feel you. very grateful that you told me all those things. And uh, I also feel like I don't need you to live it fully again on this podcast. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> I feel like uh, folks can buy your book or they can see the movie or they can listen to your new podcast. And, yeah. and those are great ways of, um, you know, I don't need you to, you don't have to jump through hoops for me. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you know, you've already you've already uh, created some great ways of accessing your story, and so oh. I will I will refer folks to those, and I'll take them in myself. That means a lot, you know. And also, there's a there's a really great website that the the film company put up, which is called StopErasing.com, and um, it has every way that you can help out by stopping conversion therapy. It's like one of the most convenient things now because I don't have to like go through, like go to the Trevor Project and this page and do that. And, you know, now it's all on one page. So it's stopperracing.com. It's sort of a way to like really um, get people to be activists in their own states and towns, cities. And of course we need that. Of yeah. Course. Of course. <laughs> we need uh, to, we need it now more than ever. Yeah. Well, before I send you back into your day, mm-hmm. I just want to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be the person you are today. Um, I'm going to stick with my literary bent and say that, um, you know, I read The Scarlet Letter when I was in high school, and then I reread it when I was, it was like right after I'd been in conversion therapy. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read because this whole town is wrong about this issue. Like she has this A on her chest and she didn't do anything wrong. Like there was nothing she did wrong. 
You it's know, pretty feminist, Nathaniel it's, Hawthorne. It's pretty feminist. Fe- I mean, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne <laughs> had to be a little queer because I he just oh, like he yeah. got it. He just got it. Right. Um and, and it is feminist. I mean, Hester Prynne is her own woman, and she mm. her her art is what eventually decorates everyone's outfits in the town, and they're fucking hypocrites because they wear mm. her beautiful art, but they don't want to associate with her. And I think that. Not only is it feminist, but it's also like pro-artist. Like, this is what happens. People will wear your beautiful shit, but they won't necessarily value you. But you you mm. make it because it's inherently valuable. And, and hopefully it makes people more beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I have so many. Like, I literally just, I feel like I want to like, I just want to, sh- I want to shake your hands uh, and say, thank you for doing the hard work that you're doing right now. It really matters. I know that you know that, but it's important to tell people to their face if you get the opportunity that really matters what you're doing. I know you're putting yourself through a lot for this project and um and you know, thank you. It means a lot for, to hear that from for you. all the queer folks out there who really who have been through this and and who you are preventing from going through this. Thank and you. Thank you for yeah. doing your work. Thank you so yeah. much. Oh man. Awesome. Okay. Have okay. a great rest of your day. This episode of Query is sponsored by Wild Fang, a feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy and is committed to giving back. Also, it's like hella queer. It just seems extremely queer. It's female-founded, women-run. They offer gender-smashing styles. They got suits. They got button-downs. A percentage of every purchase at wildfang.com goes to charity, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to fight for your rights. You go to wildfang.com and use the code QUERY for 25% off. Get a button-down. Get a hat. Get a warm hat. Get pants. I recently went to the Wild Fang in Portland. They gave me an opportunity to try and all the stuff in the store. Met the founder, Emma. God, it was a great time. Head to wildfang.com. Use the code query for 25% off. (laughs) 